As John mentioned, and as many of you have heard over and over again, my name is Kyle Hepner. I'm the editor of New England Home Magazine. Uh, we, too, are very pleased to be part of the group that puts on these talks because it's a very significant part of our mission as a publication to be a real integral part of the high-end design and construction industry rather than just an outsider who is presenting your stuff to others because uh, we, we feel like we can all do it together and make it much, much better and make everybody have a good time and make some money at the same time, which is great for everybody. Um, that being said, I'm going to jump in here and introduce tonight's panel. Um, a couple of introductory remarks. Obviously, tonight we are talking a little bit about teams that are put together to manage and create large-scale residential projects. Um, and these teams can happen in a lot of different ways. Uh, the projects can range in size for a bit, but all of them are collaborations in some fashion. Um, we have touched on this particular topic several times in past talks over the years, always from a different angle. Um, and one comment that has come up a couple of times is that people felt that we've always been a little bit too polite. Um, and there's been a lot of very good advice about being a good communicator and being a good colleague and always being open to other people's input and stuff like that. But in real life, it doesn't always happen quite that neatly. And so people have said, we don't want to hear anything more about communication. We want something real. Um, so in preparation for tonight, I've spent a good bit of time over the last couple of weeks really carefully looking over old episodes of Jerry Springer. Um, and I've told our panelists not to wear anything breakable uh, or stainable tonight. So I hope they have done that. Um, so we are obviously in the spirit of community and communication and being a good partner, we're going to delve into a lot of topics here about leadership and how that gets apportioned and how it might inhere in one person or it might move around or some of all of those things. Um, but we are specifically going to be looking for real world advice about things that might not work so well, ways to deal with that when that happens, personal reminiscences without necessarily names attached uh, about both good and bad examples of this kind of thing. Because the idea of these talks is really for everybody here to have some interesting and useful things to go home with. And with that in mind, as John mentioned, we also do encourage all of you in the audience to be part of the conversation uh, all the way through, which means if something strikes a chord with you, you have a question to ask, you have something that you would like to interject, please grab the attention of one of the two people with the handheld mics. If you guys could wave your arms so people know who you are. There's Cindy Hepner over there, who will soon be over here closer to the audience, uh, where she's accessible. And then John is going to be on this side. Uh, one thing I will ask is, if you do want to do that, make sure you get the microphone before you start talking, uh, because these talks have always been recorded. Um, and a lot of the recordings of past talks are available on the Bad Talks website, but an increasing number of them are also available as podcasts on iTunes. Uh, and so if you want your contribution and question to be immortalized on those iTunes podcasts, you need to make sure that you have the mic before you say anything so that everybody else can hear what you're asking. Um, as usual, I've gone on way too long. Um, so I would like to introduce, uh, in this corner, weighing in at 155 pounds, <laughs> We have uh, Mike Tardamella, who is a managing partner with Patrick Ahern Architects in Boston, uh, who is going to be for tonight at least partly representing the architectural point of view of team making and kind of team building and team creation of stuff. Um, we also have another Mike, Mike Moynihan, who is the project manager and owner of Nautilus Construction. Uh, also worked with E.B. Norris for about 22 years before this, has a lot of other management um, uh, experience, and more importantly for tonight, also has worked a number of times as an owner's rep on some big and complex projects. And so he's going to be 
not only from his construction background, but particularly from the owner's point of view, is going to be weighing in on some of these power relationships. Uh, we have Eric Adams of Adams and Beasley, very fine custom builder that many of you have worked with. Um, I will mention that Eric has a project in the current issue of New England Home, and there are a couple of those floating around if you want to check it out and see if he has any business being up here and talking. <laughs> good. And in the far corner, we have interior designer Heather Wells from Heather Wells, Inc. in Boston. Herself, uh, a designer who has been in the game for quite some time, has worked on a lot of wonderfully gorgeous and very successful projects. Um, everybody up here uh, has the kind of, uh, well, I don't even know quite the right word. The, the good thing about everybody up here is everybody up here has worked on a lot of different teams with a lot of different types of colleagues um, in projects that have, by and large, come out very nicely uh, with a little bit of friction along the way sometimes. So it's like everybody here has dealt with these things in a very tangible way over the years in a number of different cases. So we should have a lot of good insights uh, coming. With that said, have I missed anything important? Somebody will let me know if I have. We'll get to some of the thanks and everything at the end, so we won't do that right now. Um, just to kind of get started is the, the topic tonight, when we were coming up with the acute name, we came up with who is in the driver's seat. Um, and obviously one question that has come up ever since then when we've talked with various people is, is that really the right image for this? Uh, because you know, if you read Ayn Rand, a lot, Ayn Rand a lot and have bought into the Fountainhead and Howard Rourke and that kind of thing, then you would say, yes, there is a master in the driver's seat and that's it. Um, but I wonder, just kind of for our panel, is there actually a driver's seat on a lot of these projects, or are there multiple drivers over time, or what are other ways that this might work from your point of view? And anybody who wants to jump in, feel free to do that. There's definitely a driver. Whoa, check. Trees loud. Um, there's definitely a driver's seat. Um, but as is most often the case, there's more backseat drivers than we can account on any one given job. Uh, and my experience has been that you definitely need someone to take the lead on any project, but at any given time, uh, someone else's voice is actually giving the direction and the turns. And if you're that person who is in the driver's seat and you can't recognize that, although you may be the head, she is the neck, beware. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a reference to my big fat Greek wedding, if anyone's ever seen it. We just love that scene where he's, you know, he's, he's the head of the family and makes all the calls, but uh, the wife is able to turn the man's head. So uh, we love movie illustrations and uh, marriage illustrations. Anyone that's been through any relationships realizes that a building team is much like a marriage many, many times where it's really trying to get everyone's will in a, in, in a same general direction and it's not without friction. So I do look forward to uh, sharing maybe some experiences and hearing other people's input tonight that yes, there's uh, many different ways that a job can run and uh, what everyone's in, input and take is on it. Okay. Well maybe Mike, um, you know, kind of historically people assume I think that the architect as kind of author of the program, if you can say it that way, is sort of an automatic um, candidate for being the project head. Um, is that, in your experience, is that often how it works? Is that rarely how it works for you? What, are your, what is your take on this? Um, how about those patriots? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I thought a lot about this in the past 24 hours after talking to Kyle and, and even thinking just today about some of my experiences with that. But, you know, as a creative person and oftentimes as, as someone who originates and gives birth, you know, to, to a house or a design, I think intuitively you want to maintain that some sort of control over that um, you know, construction process, if you will. But I think ultimately, if there's, if there's someone who is really driving the bus, I think it's, you do have a client. And you know, that's who ultimately everybody's working for. And I think while they might be driving, we're, we're telling them where to go. So I think at different intervals along the way, um, 
it's, it's nice to have somebody that might collaborate with you on that, but you know, it, it's not without difficulty. And, and I'm sure we're just getting to the surface of that iceberg tonight. Okay. Um, anybody else want to weigh in as long as we're on this topic? I guess I'd say that um, I think that the, I, I like the, the idea, the, the client being in the driver's seat and because I'd been so kind of myopically focused in one of the th three or four people up here being that candidate, I hadn't even opened my mind up to think that way. Um, but I think ultimately it comes down to experience, technical competency, um, and uh, as I was saying to someone here earlier, every project has different uh, objectives, different value propositions, and um, you know, from the builder standpoint, we want to start with the end in mind. That's something that we kind of talk to all our teams about, and that inherently means taking the uh, everything from fixtures and furnishings and decorations into consideration at the very beginning so that if there's a plumbing, electrical, or structural implication to what we're trying to achieve in the final vision, that that's being woven into the process from the very beginning. So um, I think of it as um, people are probably familiar with the three-legged stool metaphor. I think sometimes it can be more like the three-headed dragon. Um, but in successful projects where I think we really steward our clients successfully, um, it's part communication, it's part competency, um, and it's part collaboration. Right. Well, Heather, obviously in your company, um, <clears throat> you are often involved in not just decoration, um, but very much involved in a lot of kind of interior finishes and sometimes detailing and all this kind of sort of stuff. Um, how kind of what has your experience been with projects overall and the, the ways in which the power relationships work? I think the power relationships fluctuate. I think um, I like to come onto a project early and I think the best big projects have the entire team on them within the first month or two or the first couple of months. Like you want, I even would prefer the builder to be picked early in the game so that you're pricing as you're going. Um, so that everyone's on the same page and hearing the client from the beginning so you're not trying to catch up. Um, I think that, um, that everyone is in the driver's seat at different times and it's certainly the client being the most important. But I think at times it has to switch between people because of who the client can hear the best. So I think that um, Certainly the architect is the one that's picked first and defines the program with the client and sets up the situation and the technical parts of the project. Um, I work as an interior designer to help them early on to define what those goals are on the interior and to push it through and to sometimes help with the communication because I think that clients can't always understand what an architect is trying to say. Um, so I think it, it, it vacillates between the different parties and it, and like I said, it's who the client can hear at the time and a really good team can let egos go and let it dance, um, and comes together. You know, most of my big projects, we talk once a week as a group so that we are able to sort of set the goals of what we're trying to achieve and whoever feels like they can get that pushed forward with the client and it and it's a different person every time. You know, it's not always the architect, it's not always the builder, it's not always the owner's rep. It's it's all of us at different times can help push it forward. And a really good team comes together as a unit and sort of drives it together. Um, I think if you just have one leader, it's too much pressure on the big projects for any one person to be that lead including the client, I think it's too much pressure on them. So I think it needs to dance back and forth between the different parties when it's the most successful. You wanted to I think it's a great point about coming on early in the process because oftentimes I find it more challenging when, when a designer might come in 
midway through construction, and all of a sudden they're trying to catch up with what selections have been made and what's going on on the job site and what are we doing here? And, and before you know it, you know, they want to move a wall afoot and well, there happens to be a structural member inside of that wall and now what could have been a very easy thing is now much more difficult. So I think that's a great point about everybody coming on and, and establishing a collective vision. And, and maybe the architect might shape that in the beginning or what's the theme for the project or what's the concept. Um, and I think, you know, to dovetail that point, bringing in a designer or bringing on an architect for that matter that has that vision, that shares that vision with you uh, as a client, it, it's a very important step in that selection process. I mean, I think um, at the beginning of, uh, I think it was even the fountain, there's a, there's a sort of little line that says, choose the builder of your home as carefully as you've chosen the bride to inhabit it. Well, I think that holds true for an architect or a designer as well. I think that's a good point. Um, I mean, obviously, projects can happen in a lot of different ways, uh, because especially in this industry, a lot of projects that architects and designers have will be with the same family or the same clients multiple times. So in many cases, there are pre-existing relationships. Uh, often the builder or the designer or the architect might actually be with the family, helping them find the land, helping them figure out where the house should be sited, helping them shop for architects and builders. And so it's, you know, these things can start in a lot of different ways. So from those different beginnings, how do you evolve a team and figure out who is the person who leads it? Does it sort of automatically devolve on the architect at the initial design stage because that's sort of the first part that needs to happen? So is it actually a schedule-based thing? and then it becomes maybe the site manager more during construction who's then coordinating between the designer and the architect and the client because all of them are having to be part of the, the equation at that point. It, it, it's a little bit, you know, it, a lot, there's a lot that goes into that and I think one of the biggest factors is upfront, what's it gonna take to do what we wanna do? You know, one of the things that we often say is, is zoning impacts design, for instance whether you're working in historic district in Edgartown on Martha's Vineyard or whether you're working in Wellesley on a suburban lot or whether you're working you know, in the middle of nowhere across the country in a town you've never worked in, you, you have to really establish what are the rules of engagement uh, from my perspective as an architect. You know, from there, I think you can really get some clarity on what that process is gonna be to even get out of the ground. So having everybody understand that in the beginning and oftentimes we might have assistance from the builder or the designer and, and I think one of the things that we've, we've sort of started to talk about was who originates a project, and that could be any one of us sitting on the stage. But I think in some ways we're all critical to, to getting that project off the ground. Uh, and, and as we, has been said, there's different people that might be driving that from at different stages along the way. Well, this is actually a question. I did, can I just maybe you can say something before second. I, yeah, sure. Um, I think ultimately this question comes down to the level of granularity with which we're, we're kind of addressing the topic. Um, if you look at it from, from a zoomed out perspective, it could be any, I think it could be any one of the four of us at different times. Um, but I like what you were saying, you know, we do a lot of work in high rise buildings and so that presents a whole nother layer of constraints and uh, kind of uh, restrictions on what you can and can't do, um, which in my experience tends to rely more on technical parameters, plumbing code minutiae, um, building regulations, um, similar to zoning regulations, right? Like those types of constraints um, can have a similar effect on, on how the project gets off the ground or, or what the kind of initial um, parameters of the, of the program are. Um, well, I think just a real question, Kyle, is, um, in, in asking who's leading the project is um, what, what specific thing are you talking about? You know, recently we had a client have a fire and I was the second person they called. They never called the architect. They called the owner's rep, the owner's rep called the builder, and then the client called me, and then I called the architect. And it's, it's about the relationship. You know, it's just, you know, who do you think to call? When you're unhappy about money, who do you call? When you're unhappy about, <laughs> yeah, when you're unhappy about how something comes out on the interior, you might call the interior designer, even if it is an architectural thing. 
And if you're unhappy about something that happens on the exterior, you call the architect. So it's, you know, when you say who's the lead, lead in what, you know, is the question because I think that each each party is leading something. Um, I mean, there's no question that every single person on this panel has to be leading part of it to get it done. But what does leading mean? What do well, you mean I, by that? I think that's a good question for us to explore a little more because obviously leading can be you know, evolving the design overall with the client, which is one thing. Leading can be being responsible for the schedule and the budget for a project that has already been mostly defined and is now in process. Uh, leading can also be, as you said, kind of being in a trust relationship with the clients who will either be happy or unhappy about things as they go along um, and may not be all that worried about who they talk to about it. So it might be whoever happens to be there or it may be the person that they're most comfortable with. And so I guess the question we're trying to deal with is given all of that fuzziness of what the group can be dealing with, how do you come up or what are some tips for coming up with a useful and kind of collegial way of keeping everybody on the same page and having decisions made in a useful and timely fashion, uh, which I think probably from the owner's rep perspective is also a very important thing. Is that not? I, I through the years, have spent an awful lot of time uh, making sure that the team is understanding each other well and is well aware of um, the owner's intentions. Uh, every professional in this room has uh, their own drive, their own initiative, their own vision of what any, any particular project will look like. But as Kyle was just mentioning, quite oftentimes there's a whole lot of parameters that each individual person might not necessarily be privy to. And as an owner's rep, a lot of times the only reason I'm there is they have a level of confidence that in their absence, uh, I'll be looking after design intent, uh, cost. Th that's a, a huge consideration for every owner. Uh, there's nothing that sort of, I guess, upsets me more than being involved with a project with someone who is notable and extremely wealthy and catching that attitude that somehow they can afford it. Uh, no, they can choose to afford it. It's not our right as professionals to decide who can afford that change order. And uh, that's a hard lesson sometimes to learn uh, when you're coming into a project that you have such a great expectation and a dream for, and you know they can afford your most wildest dreams. Um, it's funny you said who, who are you going to call when you're in a when you're having a, a crisis, and of course it's about relationships, relationships and everything. But I also wonder how much of it is would be guided by cost. So as an interior designer, I typically charge hourly. I wonder at what point, Heather, do you charge per job or per project? When do you part company with your hourly rate? And and then Mike, for you, as a an owner's rep. I would think that those calls would always go to you as like the chief handholder. So this is really interesting to me to discover your role. So that's kind of a, a I don't know, multi-question for anybody. Uh, Heather, maybe you can start with how you, how you charge when you get into a big project. Um, I never part with my hourly rate. So I mean, if someone calls me on a Saturday and tells me their house is on fire, I don't bill, bill them. Like, you know, I don't think about it, but um, I charge hourly through the entire time because I have different kinds of relationships with clients, some that are extremely efficient and some that are extremely inefficient. And I'm not going to be um, caught in that. Like if someone wants to discuss something with me for hours on end every single week, that's totally fine, but I'm going to be paid for it because I'm not billing someone else. So that's how I charge. Um, but, you know, it, it, little conversations in the evening if someone calls because they're upset about something, I'm not 
nickel and diming. Um, but I'm certainly um, getting my wage. So would you tell them if they had a question about the architecture and how you work hand in glove with them, would you suggest that they call the architect and if it's do it on If it's something I don't know, right? Uh, if it's an easy question and they're just calling and, and saying, and by the way, you know, what color is that trim or how does that door work or, you know, and I know the answer, I just answer it. Um, if it's more technical, and I feel like it's not in my purview, yeah, I send them that way. Or if they don't feel comfortable, I find out the answer for them. And Mike, you, if the um, client had a question about something, would you handle it from that point on, or would you just direct them who to take it up with? Uh, so, so, so getting back to sort of dovetailing on that, and as well as what Kyle was saying, for me, what's the most important in any team is making sure that people do know what's expected of them and, and, and where they're trying to get to with that project. As an owner's rep, I'm usually only there because I am already, um, I don't want to say the most trusted individual in the room, but there's no need for me if they already have the relationship uh, with an architect, a builder, or a designer that they're confident that any one of that, those other team members could handle the entire project. So I am most often there because it is a client's desire and a trust that they have that um, their um, will is going to be accomplished easier with my presence and them not having to answer quite as many uh, questions. So my experience has been, yes, uh, I will make an awful lot of decisions. And it partly becomes, comes from an experience of already having, uh, usually in the past, had a budgetary number and, and been able to see a project through where they know in their minds that they're, they're intending to spend uh, you know, two and a half million on this renovation or this home. And I have to tell you, most clients aren't necessarily going to release that information initially with their architect or their builder. They're like, I only want to spend 1.25. See what you can do with that. I, I don't necessarily agree with that. And, and, and here's why. Because I think that, that question is, you know, maybe one of the, the first or, or second questions that I think as an architect you really want to know. You really want that trust in the beginning. And whether you have to earn it or you have to build it, that has to be there. Because if you're not going to be honest with the design professionals that you put in place, you're basically you're tying one hand behind our back. So it would really be, I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't know that up front. And you know, to be honest, I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, I think we're, what we're getting to the heart of is accountability, too. And, and when you're on a job site, there's, there's liability issues as a registered professional. There's, there's accountability with who's responsible for what, whether it's budget related, whether it's decision making, whether it's timeline related. And, and that's where I think you start to have the core of some of the, the arguments or, or some of the, the unsatisfied clients. When you, might have a con when you might have a contractor that's not managing the budget or the schedule properly. When you might, you, know, you might have a situation where you have an architect that has a discrepancy on the drawing. That, that caused somebody to do something wrong in the field. You know, who rectifies that? Or you know, for holding up decisions on a project, for whether it's lighting or, or you know, furniture selections on, on appliances, plumbing fixtures, whatever it may be. Who's accountable for those things? And, and that gets to the core of you know, who's really calling the shots at any, any given time. Go ahead, Eric. So I find that um, Kind of some administrative tools that uh, we try to use on a regular basis, try seek to kind of uh, remedy what can potentially be uh, the train coming off the, tr the tracks, right? And so weekly meetings where all members of the team are present um, and getting to this accountability, having clear expectations from everybody. Um, and, you know, we tell in a sales context, I tell potential clients all the time, the, the biggest concern, the thing that keeps me up at night is the boogeyman. And they tend to laugh and I say, no, really, it's the unexpected things, right? It's those things that no one anticipates or because one of us isn't doing a good enough job that we don't warn the client about or that we all know that it might be a possibility, but at these weekly meetings, people aren't raising their hand and saying, what about this thing here? We know that groundwater is an issue, or we know that, I don't know, permitting is an issue, or sprinklers, or whatever it is. Um, weather is going to be an issue because we're coming into this time of year, and you know, snow is going to snow the, slow the project down. So um, 
I think it's just this regular cadence of communication. And you know, the, the, as I'm sitting up here listening to this, I'm realizing that um, who's in the driver's seat? Well, this isn't, this isn't car race, this isn't NASCAR, right? Where every driver's out there, they might have a pit crew, but they're out there on the track by themselves. This is a team sport and we rely on each other to hold each other accountable, to support each other. Um, and so, you know, I keep trying to think what's the ap most apt analogy, um, passing the baton back and forth, um, you know, and, and again, that's why I said a few minutes ago, it comes down to kind of the level of zoom that you're looking at it, right? Because if, if you're zoomed right in, we're passing the baton back and forth every single day. Yeah. Right? Maybe like Lord of the Flies, who has a Marshall? <laughs> Like, yeah. no. I mean, the question, who's in the driver's seat, is an ego-driven question. And you have to, ultimately, to get to the best product, you have to take the ego out of it. I mean, I think the ego is involved at every step of the way over little tiny decisions, but in the bigger sense, you need to remove the ego and have it be a soccer game where you're hitting the ball back and forth. Because if you don't, you're never going to get to that goal. Um, so I, I think gone are the days, at least with a big project, where there's one person sort of ruling the roost. I just, it, it, the projects move too quickly, just there's too many decisions to be made, and computers and technology have made the pace so extreme that you have to work as a team to get it done. Um, you know, we have weekly meetings where the client knows that they're there and they pop in and out of them. I actually don't think that having the client there every week, especially if there's an owner's rep, is necessary. Um, I think it's good for them to have it in their calendar and to know it's there. And if you need them, you can call them in. But all the picky uni little decisions, no. Um, it depends on like how fast-paced the project is. If it's really, really fast and decisions are being made every week and they need to be involved, then yes. If there's a plan and a set sort of thing and you're just working out the dynamics of little things, I don't think they need to listen to all that. But I mean, I think, Heather, what you just said is an important uh, thing to keep in mind. Um, and I just kind of, from the publishing point of view and just from having worked with a huge number of designers and architects and builders and everybody over time, landscape people, I think actually the difficult thing with this topic is that the ego and control aspect is innate to it because almost everybody involved is a creative person. And as a creative person, you want your concept and your idea to kind of have value and primacy in a way. And because, like a Hollywood film, all of these things are so big and complex, they can't be executed by one person. Um, and so you automatically have the kind of creative ego in conflict with the idea that you do, in fact, have to collaborate um, and that those other people are creative and they have their ideas too. And so it's like almost by nature, there is a certain amount of negotiation or friction that happens. So I think maybe for, for our purposes here, the question is given that inescapable reality, what are the most useful ways to deal with it so that everybody feels like they got something that they wanted um, and nobody feels like they've been badly treated or their idea got quashed or it's been perverted into something horrible or you know, the client ends up with something that's vastly over budget and isn't really what they were looking for. Um, forgive me for weighing in a little bit, but just I've, I've heard a lot of this stuff over time. So I think you to talk a little bit about the accountability and communication. You know, Mike, having an owner's rep may automatically help the situation uh, because you do presumably have the client's confidence in a way and can become sort of a, a calm center to kind of keep everybody else pulled together. Um, what about, I mean, a lot of clients won't necessarily have a client, uh, an owner's rep, and these are often very wealthy and powerful people who are used to running things in their own world um, even though those things may not be a complex building project and they may not really be good at that or know it. Are there issues that any of you have had 
where the client was one of the, wanted to be the leader, but was actually one of the sources of problems? And if so, how do you deal with that? Never heard that. No names again, right? But anybody who wants to jump in on that one. <laughs> I forgot that question, Kyle, honestly. <laughs> have, we, have we ever had a client who, who micromanaged the process, would you say? Or uh, wanted to manage but wasn't necessarily competent to do so. Yeah, I think inevitably in, in high-end residential you come across all types and, and you come across people who, who do think that they know better. But I think, you know, again, it goes back to that building trust and trying to understand What's their, what's their concern? How do you sort of alleviate that concern? How do you direct them in a way that, that gives them the confidence in you that, that they say, okay, I don't have to micromanage. I'm good at what I do. I'm good at you know, managing money or I'm good at running whatever business that, that I run and I don't necessarily need to worry about what's going on on the job site. And I think that that doesn't necessarily come 100% upfront. You have to earn that over time and you continue to earn that and sometimes it takes the entire project to earn that fully. Um, but, you know, in my experience, clients that have micromanaged processes have cost themselves more money, it's taken more time, and it's been a struggle, I think, to get through the process. Are there ways to fix that with clients who are trying to do it? Don't work with them. I would just say, you know, there's a lot going on right now, as someone said to me before, you know, don't work with them. So. Okay, Mike number two wants to. Talk. Yeah, um, my experience, having worked uh, more in the middle, I, I think, than, than most people uh, for much of my life, in the middle, in that I mean, um, having come out of the building trade and being privileged and honored to bring architects' visions to pass. And, and see all the value that an interior designer can add. I've learned to hold um, judgment on the color that's going on the wall until the final product is in, because it is amazing. And then there's been so many times where it hasn't been like that. Uh, but what, what I'm getting at is my, my um, every professional's uh, input and design intent is very important. And there are times where uh, an owner may need to be educated just as much as a builder or an architect or a designer, because they all have different sets of factors that they might not understand. Uh, the architect might not be sympathetic to the timeline that the owner has put in place, and an owner's rep might have to explain how important that is and that it's a bad time to change that particular pediment detail, because the molding's already here, and it's <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but I'm sorry, so, so for me, the most valuable tool is making sure that there is a schedule and an expectation of who's producing what. So I don't include every team member in every meeting. I do try and make sure that at every meeting uh, we have identified who's attending the next one, who needs to be at the next one. I don't need the landscape architect at the interior when we're picking fabrics, when, you know, when the owner's picking curtains. And likewise, so there are different times for each design professional to be involved in that meeting. But certainly um, communication, I know we're not going to talk about that, but the communication that's important to me is communicating expectations to every team member yeah, and checking out and making sure everyone knows that, look, this is your timeline. I like a timeline that has those black diamonds and it says, our architect must spec moldings by this date or cost will go up <laughs> or uh, owner must select because there's a hundred of those decisions in these projects. And so making sure that someone is uh, overseeing, yes, thousands, overseeing that timeline and assigning uh, who, who has to pick it. Uh, I hate an email that goes out to the group with three bullet points and nobody assigned the individual bullet points, right? Talk about frustrating your team member. But uh, so that's an important point. That's a very good point. Your, your question reminds me of a uh, commercial I've seen on TV a lot lately where it's a personal injury attorney, apologize, um, that says, would you hire an accountant to pull a tooth? You know, um, would you hire a surgeon to fix your car? Um, and so I think in the context of a client, um, and we work with a lot of them who um, want to be too involved in the, in the minutia, um, 
I, I try, I don't know why, I, I tend to have conversations um, usually about budget. It might be myself and the client, just the two of us. And um, in a couple of situations currently where this is happening, where uh, the client is kind of second guessing some of the selections or molding profiles or placement of certain architectural features. And I feel like it's my obligation and responsibility in the absence of the team to buttress the team by uh, representing the interest of the design vision even without those people there. Because ultimately, we will all have those opportunities to have one-on-one -on -one time with the client. And if there's any type of undermining of each other behind each other's backs, even a little bit, it starts to erode the confidence of my initial point, which is we are all specialists. And hopefully, the clients who have these resources are choosing us um, not just because they like how we dress or they, you know, whatever. They're choosing us because we have, uh, we're bringing something of tangible value to the table. And so uh, keeping that team together, even when we're not together, is the most important thing in my mind. Uh, because we can, we can continue, <laughs> we can continue to help each other uh, in those situations. That's a great point. I think we have a question. Um. Um, the only, I just wanted to comment that um, in my bigger projects, we do the same thing, and it's a team effort. Um, and we do meet with the clients like once a month. We also use a tool called Builder Trend. So there's daily progress, and the clients have access to it. So they can look every day, and they can see pictures of their project. So, and there's also a budget on it. and. So they're constantly able to see what is going on in, in the project. So there's no guessing. And they can see their, they can see their um, financials. So, so that was something. You know, we have projects where the client disappears for nine months out of the year. Yeah. And, you know, they're not even around. <laughs> Those are the best projects. Uh, you know, they, they'll drop off the keys and say, you know, I'll come back next summer. That's right. <laughs> That's right, but I, you know, I think everybody wants to, maybe Kyle's the only one who wants to hear that, nobody gets along and everybody's fighting and, and there's undermining it, but you know, reality of the situation is that that serves nobody. And, and when, you, when you're constantly battling uphill against trying to stick up for, you know, I'm qualified to be here and, and that, you know, decorator doesn't know what they're talking about, I mean, that, that does nothing for everybody. And, and if there is conflict, and look, it, it's an industry that's not without, and you're on a job site, whether there are egos, architect, builder, client, designer, whoever it may be, you got to find a way to get by that quickly, yes. because otherwise that's just going to erode the rest of the project. Well, that's and not a team. That's not a team, and I think it is really genuinely a team sport, and I know that's the politically correct answer, but it really genuinely is. Well, it's, it, it, it all comes down to the client. I mean, if the client picks a bad team, then that's what they get. Right. You know, if a client micromanages, we had a client that recently micromanaged, and we backed down. She got a lot less out of us than she would have. She doesn't know that. She's thrilled. But I spent way less time on that project than I would have if she hadn't been micromanaging. Yeah. And so, you know, luckily she has no idea. And the house came out nicely. It's, it's, it could have been better. There was issues. And some of the issues was caused by her. And, you know, so you, but it, it really comes down to picking, at this point, I mean, everyone on this panel can see through some of these issues. So they're, we're not dealing with it as much as we used to. I mean, when I was younger, I did have to deal with more of this stuff. Right. But well, now that, I can see it. And that's actually a, a good segue to what I was about to say, because it's not that I'm looking for conflict, but I know, and up here on the stage, people rarely want to talk about the conflict. But in private conversations I've had with literally dozens of people in this room, I have heard about conflicts. Oh, yeah. And so the question I think I have here is, what are productive ways to either recognize and diffuse those things before they happen, or productive ways to try to deal with them when they do happen? And so kind of a question for everybody before I get to um, our friend out here in the front row, uh, or maybe I should 
let's do this. You'll, you'll still, your question will still be good, I think, right? Um, in your own experience from teams you have worked on, when there have been times when you felt that at least one of the partners was not playing nice in some fashion, how did you deal with it? And if that happened again, would you deal with it in the same way or would you try something else? I, I would say this, pick up the phone. Don't send an email, you know, I think, you know, we take for granted how much we write an email these days. And, and when I've run into a situation like that, I confront it right away with a, hey, what's going on? What can we do differently? How do we work this out? Because I don't think anybody wants to continue on a project and torture themselves by having to feel like they have to watch their back every day. And, and so I would advocate for picking up the phone and addressing the situation head on right away. I agree. Uh, I've certainly had to moderate my share of conflicts uh, on design teams. And uh, first and foremost is always to talk to that individual. Oftentimes we don't even know what's going on. Oftentimes they might not even know they're the source of the frustration amongst the team and that they're uh, going against the grain or they've um, alienated a perfectly good, valid vendor or uh, upset the apple cart. So certainly speaking that individual, and, and that's a learned art. Uh, some of you may not have good conflict resolution skills. But if you're certainly going to be a team member and able to work through problems, especially when it, they're as complex as they are in the high-end residential market, you're usually dealing with uh, you know, significant amount of resources and design and intent and timelines. And so certainly being able to figure out why that team member uh, is not currently fitting and hopefully resolve it and, uh, and, and get the team heading in the right direction, again, is a good start. But I will say, uh, again, those of us up here have probably been through it enough times, it's not necessary, but there are some bad teams that have been put together. And being able to identify that and uh, correct it sometimes is not easy. Hopefully it's been caught very early, but oftentimes it's far too late and you'll have to muster through and grin and bear it and make two less phone calls than you would have normally, yeah. as Heather mentioned, I mean, maybe uh, I, not. I mean, I, I would say that majority of the teams that we're on are very good, but I've recently been on a large job that had a very conflicted team and it's continued to be conflicted um, and I think it was innately the client not understanding who they were hiring and that they were putting oil and water together you know over and over again and so I guess you know there's clarity there about that I don't know if there's any resolving it so you eventually you play dirty and then you end up playing nice you know you get over it um, so, so Heather, in that instance, uh, did the client know that it was oil and water coming together? Because I do think yeah, sometimes yeah. as design sometimes professionals, they do. you know that you shouldn't have joined I've, that team. I've been hired on, on teams where they know I'm going to cause conflict, and they do it on purpose, and they say it in the interview. So, because um, I do generally create conflict. <laughs> but I think that sometimes they innocently go into it and they don't really know what they're doing and it's get, they get far enough down the road that it feels like they can't turn around. Um, and, and then you sort of muster through. Um, eventually it seems like the teams come together, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I think the hardest client is the sort of virgin client, you know, the newly rich 40-something that's doing their first huge house and going from like a two-bedroom with their three kids crammed in it to a 40,000 square foot, you know, or whatever, not that, but 15,000 square feet. And they're jumping from, you know, 3,000 to 15,000. And it's a huge leap and it's the first time and, and it's scary. And they tend to hire professionals that are way more um, confident and competent than they are and yet they have a lot of money and they're trying to keep up with it it's that's a difficult situation and you sort of go into it knowing that you're getting into it I mean if you go in if you build a project with a person that's doing their first big house you know that you're going to get into conflict because they don't know what they're doing I mean much e it's much easier to deal with a client that's been three or four projects in Right. Well, we could probably profitably talk about the education process. Yeah. But let's give Eric a chance. Uh, I was just, I, I'm continuing to go back to like, I think it starts at the beginning, right? The creation of the team at the beginning of the process is really, I think, the most um, 
influential factor in whether or not it's going to be a successful partnership throughout the process. Um, and um, as a builder, I, I um, you know, uh, constantly. wishing, and I was speaking with another builder before this started, that um, uh, the bid process, I think, tends to, um, and maybe this is my own head trash, so I apologize, but um, I think it tends to um, insert an element of financial importance vis-a-vis -vis what the different proposals from three different builders I are. I don't like the bid process at all. I, I, think, I think you should be picked just like everybody else. Right, and, and I think that, you know, if the, the client typically has, except in these kind of uh, virgin situations, right, they have usually a pre-existing relationship with one of us, right? And so um, asking that person, that member of the team, that, that nexus, right, to, to start to assemble a team of people that, that kind of share similar style or past experiences or priority, professional priorities or core values, something like that, that, that kind of can be the glue that holds the team together through the ups and downs of the project, um, I think is way more, del delivers way more value to the client than, um, you know, trying to save 10% from the initial build proposal, which as most of us know, is kind of a fictitious stake that's in the ground anyway. Um, I think that's, that's a really good thing that I want to come back to. Bob, you had a question that you wanted to. Thanks. Um, yeah, it goes along lines of what you're talking about right now, so I think it's, it's actually more relevant now. Thank you for <laughs> um, But it, 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 it goes along, I think, with what Heather was saying and, and Eric and, and everybody here. Um, how do we, as professionals, um, we're in this room because most of us have a similar outlook in this. We're all professionals and we've, we've, we've had good experience and bad experiences, but how do we individually and collectively educate our clients because they're the real hindrance, it seems to me, at this point to um, putting together the best team that, that we can put together. They're still locked into the old, um, who is the most trusted person? If I hire a, an owner's rep, good, he's going to look out for me and it doesn't matter who else I hire um, because he's going to have my back. Or I've got an architect and he's going to protect me from the contractor or I have a designer. You know, how do we educate them to the point that they should hire four trusted professionals and they should all be trusted, not one person to look out for them because they're going to run into a problem. But it, it seems to me that it's almost malpractice of any one of us to not educate our client at the beginning and say, you know, what you should really do is not do this bid process, or what you should really do is interview some people and select by their processes, their systems, their communication, their, their, um, their bandwidth and their, their, their skills. But how do we change that dynamic? Because that, to me, the biggest hindrance is the, the public doesn't understand what really matters at the end of the day. I think as soon as you can in the process, and that really has to do with your experience and age, ha be as authentic as you can. You know, it takes a certain time. I don't think I would have done it when I was 32. But now at 53, I say in the interview, I knew you were going to be interviewing a lot of people. This is how I am. Do you want to spend 12 hours a day with me? Do you want to have lunch with me? Do you want to have dinner with me? That's what you're going to be doing. And, um, you know, I'm talking about, I'm interviewing them in the interview. And Absolutely. I'm talking to them about Absolutely. who I am. And I'm very, I'm just like this. I'm very blunt. I curse in interviews because I'm a curser. And, you know, I, I'm very bold and I'm like that in interviews because I'm not going to pussyfoot around who I am because if they don't like me in the interview, that's fine. Like, we should get along right from the beginning and if I'm not the right fit, like, and I often, in an interview, if I sense that I'm not the right fit, I will start listing other interior designers who I think that they should talk to and I will say, I'm not sure that this, this is an amazing job, but we're going to spend two or three years together and this is who I think you should be talking to. And I'll do it with the architect, and I'll talk about it with the builders. I do not like the bid process. I think they should go and interview four or five builders, just like they do that with interior designers and architects. And I think if a job is complicated enough, it should absolutely have an owner's rep on it. 
I, I think an owner's rep is not necessarily just about needing to have one trusted person. It's when it's a job is really complex, it can use that other party to like sort of help. Um, but I think that the only way to change it is, is as you get the gumption to be this way, be that way in interviews and start to educate them right there in the interview and have the guts to do it and maybe not get the job. Sure, but it's not just about having the guts to do that for yourself, but having the guts if you are that first person and to say, and let me tell you how you should go about this. And if they say, well, I want to get three bids and I, you know, having the guts as an architect or designer or an owner's rep to say, well, that's one way to go. You have to have the guts to say, well, then maybe I'm not the right fit for right, you. Right. Yeah, you, And that's an important point, Bob, because I, I think that ties into what Heather was saying about the oil and water thing earlier, for example. You know, given the fact that we've agreed that a, a large number of these projects do come in through one of the existing team members, yeah. sort of what leeway does that initial person have to help the client negotiate the rest of the process? So if you are the first person on the job and you can sort of say, well, given what you're looking for and what I know about you from our relationship, here are some builders and some architects that I think would work well with you and would also work well with me, assuming that I'm already on the project. Sort of trying to help them avoid doing the oil and water thing inadvertently right. even. Right. I mean, do, do all of you find yourselves in situations where you would be able to do that with clients who are starting a project? I I often do. Uh, we just went through, um, we're putting together a team right now. And uh, for me, step one, knowing the client's taste, I'm not going to recommend anyone that I don't believe is a good fit. I'm not an architect who doesn't, has never built anything that fits with their taste, I'm not a designer that has never designed anything that fits with their taste. So job number one for me personally, given the relationship that I have with the owner, is recommending professionals to them that I believe would be a good fit. And then even before I recommend them to the owner, I generally will contact that professional and say, would you be interested in this job? I don't even want to give them the, the uh, option to select someone if that person wouldn't be interested in the job. So there is that role where it's important to put the right team together. I don't usually think it's the owner's responsibility to do that because I don't believe they are in the, exactly, in the trades enough to understand how important the team coming together and being together early uh, is uh, critically important. I know a lot of us feel it's a sequential rotation, but it really isn't. Uh, at least having that initial design meeting with a full team, understanding what's going to be coming down the road, and then going your separate ways, maybe not coming back until your moment in time uh, with some collaboration and understanding along the way is critically important to avoiding that meltdown halfway through the project. It's not always about hiring the cheapest bidder, you know, and oftentimes I tell clients in the beginning, you know, you need to interview this person, you're going to bring them into the fold. This has to be somebody that, that personality-wise you're going to get along with. I mean, because you're right, at, the, at that point, 10% is nothing across that project. So uh, we don't want to just eliminate, you know, everybody else and take the lowest bidder. It's, it is really important and, you know, I like the idea of eliminating the bid process. I, I can totally support that. I think that there's certain times there's, a, there's the right fit for certain types of projects, depending on what the scope of that work is. Ultimately, these days, you know, we're in a competitive environment, and some people just refuse and want four or five bids, you know. We've got one question here. I, I'm just going to ask, because my practice, however, is, is to recommend the ones I work with. All right, so um, unfortunately we're kind of running a little bit over time because it sounds like we could actually keep going for another half hour or hour if we really wanted to. Um, so just to kind of, you know, given the way our conversation has evolved tonight and based with maybe some real life uh, observations from your own past, kind of what is the biggest takeaway piece of advice you have discovered over the course of working on these kinds of teams that you would recommend to the people listening tonight uh, that, that would kind of help them going forward? I would say um, communication, um, cooperation, 
knowing when something is really important to you and when to back down. I think that enough, there's enough design ideas out there that are good that getting really stuck on something, unless it's something that you passionately you know, support and want, like if it's something that you just think is a good idea, but there's another good idea, and, the, and, and another um, design professional is pro a different idea, like being able to ebb and flow with it, because you can't always win. And it, doesn't, it makes for a best pro, the best project when each, everyone on the team gets to win, and everyone brings things to the table. It's so much richer for the layers of thought that go into it and allowing each person to have that thought and, um, and to have wins, you know, builds confidence and trust in each other and respect in each other. Um, and that includes the client. But the client shouldn't always win either. So I think it's just letting all the parties weigh in and sort of winding through, through it. Um, yeah. I guess I would, I would really uh, emphasize, regardless of who in these various seats is doing the work, um, that there is a rigorous system that is uh, kind of superimposed over the project so that at regular intervals, meetings are happening, and during those meetings, you're talking about time, money, selections, owners for decision making, consequences for lack of decision-making um, and, and just following that system, it, it should become like at a regular cadence. Um, and to the greatest extent possible, I think the most successful projects we've had utilize that system so that, um, again, like I said before, you eliminate surprises. Uh, when things come up, they're discussed timely. And if there's a cost or time implication, it's addressed in a timely fashion and the team can move forward to the next milestone. Um, I think it's, it's not, you know, I, I totally agree with you in the sense that our projects are getting bigger and bigger and more and more complex with more and more sophisticated materials and narrower margins for error and technical snafus and all kinds of stuff like that. So to the greatest extent possible, like any well-manufactured item, there's a very rigorous process with incredible tolerances that have to be adhered to, and there's specific owners along the way. And so if those things are clearly articulated and that process is followed, then the chances for a positive outcome go up significantly. I would uh, like to say a couple of things. Uh, know your strengths and weaknesses. Uh, the value of a team is that somebody else on this team can probably do it better than you. And the sooner you recognize that and allow them to help you be successful, the more successful you'll be in your business. And the other two things I want to say is don't underestimate the value that you have or overestimate it. But always let the client make that decision. I remember doing a bid out on a project where we were talking about adding geothermal cooling to an existing residency. And the cost differential was about 700-fold. We could simply put new condensers in, or we could drill 300 wells on the property. When we presented this to the owner, I was presenting the numbers. And to me, it was a no-brainer. And he sat there and said, well, let me get this straight. Six weeks out of the year, $750,000, that's a no-brainer. Put in the geothermal wells. You never know what that client is going to want. So you have to let them be the ones that make that decision. You have to give them an informed decision to make with real cost and let them decide. So don't overestimate or underestimate your value in the project, but please let them decide. Mike, you get the last word. Uh, so, so I get to summarize what everybody has said already. <laughs> but, I mean, really, check your ego at the door, you know, and, and be the good listener. And, and really listen to what both the professionals, other professionals and collaborators are telling you and also what the client's telling you before you open your mouth. And, you know, take all of that in and I think really step back and have an open ear for some of the input that others might have to say. Because I think you're right that you're not always the best person on the job site that knows everything. So.
Cool. Well, I know there are probably a few more questions and things you guys would like to discuss. So I would invite you, we still have a few minutes for more eating and drinking. I hope you'll come up and talk with some of our panelists individually, uh, even though we unfortunately have to kind of call a halt at this point. Uh, but first, I just, A, I want to thank you all for coming for this because it's clearly a topic that resonates with people. And I think we've at least scratched the surface tonight, although there was a great deal more that probably can and should be said at some point. Um, you know, I personally am still disappointed that no clothing was ripped. So for the next time, we'll try for a little more of that kind of thing. Um, there we go. All right. As long as something breaks, we're good. Um, I would also like to uh, follow up on a couple things John said. First, I want to thank the BDC, the Boston Design Center, for hosting us here. I think it's a really lovely space for us to be in, and it's very flexible. It's been working out very nicely, so we're delighted uh, to be invited to be here. Um, our next bad talk is on Tuesday, March 19th. I believe it will also be here in this space. Uh, that one's going to be called Get Your Stuff Out There, which is what busy professionals need to know about photography, self-presentation, social media, and getting your work published. Um, so I will actually have something to say on that one, I suspect. Um, we also are always, because we specifically want to be useful to everyone in the industry, we're always looking for topics. So if you have suggestions for topics, particularly let Cindy Hepner or Paul Wright, or John No, All of them would be happy to give them your, their email addresses if you want to get in touch. Uh, we do get together every summer and hash through a lot of stuff when we're talking about the next year. Um, and we always want to not, we don't want to not have feedback from you because we want this to be very useful. Uh, that's the whole point of doing this. Um, finally, I think that's it, actually. Um, so finally, I hope you have a lovely evening. Be safe and warm on the way home, and stay for a little chat. Thank you.